Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the Planeteers Podcast. It's podcast from me precious i hope you guys are still excited it's been quite a journey and it's nice to actually watch us ourselves grow and improve in doing this Da and welcome from me uh, dc we're here once again in the studio in and uh, not outside the studio thank goodness <laughs> for uh, another exciting episode uh, how are you this morning precious oh, i'm doing well carl can't complain but I would like to get more sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't we all? Um, we are sat here in Cape Town. I brought in some uh, crunchies. Would you like oh, crunchies? You are so sweet, Paul. Um, Thank you. <laughs> quite interesting. These are really good. But in in England, we call them flapjacks. Oh. And, and I don't really mind when South Africans invent new words for things. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy with that. But I have a complaint with crunchies that, as this example proves, they, they're not crunchy. They can be crunchy, but they're not all crunchy. So, I mean, you can't invent a word if it's wrong, right? It's just clearly <laughs> wrong. It doesn't make sense. But anyway, in, in, enjoy your completely not crunchy. Crunchy. <laughs> crunchy. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. <laughs> Let's... um. Let's have a look at what we've got on the show this week. So, for our science news segment, we'll be looking at the global strike that is taking place today in various cities in Cape, around South Africa. And then, moving on from science news, uh, we're going to have an exciting interview. In this one, uh, a young lady who job shadowed with us here at Access, called Ashanti Fontaine, goes right to the top to talk to the Access boss and director, Dr. Neville Swade. Um, following that, we're going to head into our One Minute Science, which this week is looking at geology. And for our science theatre this week, it will be a continuation from last week where the time traveller still tries to figure out what light is. And then, of course, to round everything off, we will go, as always, into your questions and we will hopefully have a couple of experts doing a little cameo to come and answer the interesting questions that you've sent us that this week. Stay tuned. For our science news today, we're looking at the global climate strikes that are happening today, Friday the 20th of September. So the strike is to call on political leaders to address the climate emergency and it is also a call to display mass power against carbon capital. So just a recap on where we are and things that catastrophic events that have happened this year. In July, we had the highest um, temperatures ever recorded and Alaska sea ice melted for the first time in record. And recently, uh, the Bahamas was hit with the strongest hurricane, which is Hurricane Doria. Earlier this year, Mozambique was hit with by uh, Cyclone Idai, and scientists suggest that these storms are becoming slow and thus have devastating impacts. 
over the last past over the last 70 years they have discovered that because of how slow these cyclones or storms are they have this intense and devastating uh, impact France has recently be experienced a heat wave and that has also broke a historical record and most of Africa is actually under water stress due to widespread droughts and most parts of South Africa are currently experiencing this. So what today is about is there is numerous action that is taking place across South Africa to try and make political leaders accountable. This is uh, across South Africa and the world. In right? the world, yes, in the world. So I'm just highlighting what is happening in South Africa. And one of the companies or the organizations that is behind this is the Climate Justice Charter. And their target is going to be SASOL, which is apparently the 45th uh, carbon emitter in the world so they actually want to make the to demand that it creates a transition plan to achieve zero net carbon emissions so that is what is interesting and what is happening um, as scientists we are increasingly become activists and actually calling um, our political leaders into action and I think that is quite good because it we need to we can't always just be at the background at scientists and producing research but it sh we should also make sure that this research is implemented and we actually our leaders take action um what are your thoughts carl i mean one of the novel features of this is that it's not scientists leading it right i, mm. I think it's majority of the leaders are young people yes uh, and it started in, in, what was it, Sweden with this, this young school schoolgirl. Yes. Has actually spread into a, a, a global phenomenon of young people actually taking action on these issues, which is, is quite something that's not been seen before. True, and in Australia as well, there was there's a large group of school children that are actually taking action and running these campaigns. And I was actually watching a video, I think it was shared by Neville, on the HPW page where it's a YouTube video and this lady was actually saying that one of the things that came out in South Africa is most people do not know about climate change. They know about the impacts like the droughts, the floods, but they don't actually know what climate change is. So which means there's still a gap in actually highlighting these issues to the community. Um, One thing that I've also noticed in, in South Africa is that the the climate protests have been truly uh, a multicultural uh, phenomenon, yes. whereas where I come from in, in the UK, that's absolutely not the case, to the point that it's quite awkward, that uh, it's almost exclusively a white issue. That's wow. it. <laughs> uh, and so it, it is, it's an interesting contrast, and I, I, I guess it's something that South Africa is leading on that everybody appears to, it's certainly young people, do appear to be aware that this is a problem and are all willing to, to speak out against it. Yes. So guys, today, if you are around Cape Town, Joburg and Durban and some other local um, communities, just look out for this protest. And if you feel strongly about these issues, just go join in and show your support because it's our future at the end of the day so as young people we should be taking charge all right thanks uh, precious that's all 
really fascinating and interesting news. I'm guessing that given that this broadcast goes out on Monday, that it will be too late for people to get involved in the protest this Friday. Yeah. But if people want to get involved in future protests, where could they find out more? Uh, so they normally create those events on Facebook and if you are interested we will put up an update on our Habitable Planet page and you guys can look out for it there. Super, thanks. Yes. Hashtag like the oceans we shall rise. Okay, super. Thanks very much, uh, Precious, once again for the science news. Next up, we head this week uh, into, as always, the second item, we have the interview. It's quite a special interview this week that a couple of months ago here at the Access office, we had a young lady called Ashanti Fontaine come and work as a job shadow. She's absolutely a superb uh, young scientist. She's a climate activist. She's been involved in actually organizing the, the climate protests in the past, nice. so I'm sure she will be uh, there today. And she spent a week working in the Access office, and so it was, it's obvious that she's going to the top. I sent her directly to uh, interview the boss. So um, <laughs> next up, we have a Shanti interviewing the director of Access, Dr. Neville Swade, looking at uh, what he does in terms of how the climate impacts health. Hi all, I'm sitting here with Dr. Neville Anthony Swade and he's going to be telling me a bit more about his work. Nobody says my middle name. Okay. It's like illegal. So <laughs> um, okay, so uh, <clears throat> thanks. So, so I'll, I'll try and be brief. Basically, you know, in climate and climate change, what we're really after understanding is not so much how climate, well, we obviously want to understand why climate's changing, how climate's changing, and what is the implication of a change. That's important. Yeah. And there are implications in all different areas about change. And this project, the work I'm doing, is looking at the, at the relationship between climate and disease. Mm -hmm. Some diseases are very much driven by climate. And we can tell that because they are seasonal. Mm -hmm. So they, they occur mostly in summer. They might also occur in winter but they occur in summer. So because we know there's summer and winter differences, we know that climate has a role. So as summers are changing in time, the type of summers we're getting, or the type of winters we're getting, so that affects those diseases. So for example, you know flu season is usually in winter, yeah. right? Or you, uh, what you might not know is malaria season is mostly in summer. doesn't mean we only get it in summer. It means we also get it in winter, but we get more of it in summer. So it's a seasonal disease, or hay fever is a disease or a condition that you only get in spring when the flowers are blooming or there's pollen in the air. So certain, certain you know, illnesses and conditions are subject to climate variation. And some years are worse than other years. The question is why? Okay. And then importantly, in terms of climate and climate change, if we are seeing changes to climate, what is the implication to changes to disease? For example, if summers are going to get hotter. Does that mean we can have more diarrhea or more malaria? Mm -hmm. Or does it mean less malaria, actually? Or if rainfall is changing, what does it mean? Or if temperatures are getting warmer in winter, in other words, the minimum temperature in winter is increasing, does it mean we're going to have less flu or less cold? So I just want to mention that our climate varies. So one summer is never the same as another summer. Yeah. If every summer is different, then what's happening to every disease? And what makes those differences? What makes the summers different from each other? Some years we have 
certain events that don't happen every year. It's things like the El Nino or the La Nina, you might have heard about. Yeah, right? I heard about okay, that. Okay, so those happen. And when we have an El Nino, generally speaking, it's hotter and drier in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, generally speaking, okay? Uh, but it's not always the case. We do sometimes have neutral events, so we have a strong El Nino, but we don't have an effect on the rainfall. Or we have a wet El Nino, we have sometimes above average rain. The last big El Nino we had in 2015-16 was one of the strongest El Ninos in terms of the actual measurement of the signal, which is measured by sea surface temperature. And um, in that in that event, it was much it was much drier than it was one of the driest ever. Okay, uh, El Nino event. So in other words, we had drought in, in especially in the summer rainfall area. Mm -hmm. We had a drought, and <coughs> the temperatures were hotter than normal. What's really interesting, though, is that in South Africa we have very different climate zones in different parts of the country. So you know, in the Western Cape, winters are characterised are generally cold and wet, yes. right? Whereas in the north, north or most other parts of the country, except the Eastern Cape is a bit mixed, but like KwaZulu-Natal and the Free State and Gauteng and Limpopo and Pumalanga, mm. they, have, um, they have cold, dry winters. Mm. Right? And summer is opposite. Here we have dry summers. And they have wet summers. They have rainfall yeah. in summer. So we have very different climates. So the question is, well, what does that mean for, for diseases and for other other conditions that are, are dependent. So we're looking at all of these variables, trying to understand how climate is changing, how it varies, and what it means for disease. Okay, so we've done this for malaria in the Pope, and I'm not going to tell you about that. I'm going to tell you about the work that I'm more interested in, mm -hmm. which is about um, diarrhea, actually. Sounds a bit odd, but diarrhea, diarrheal disease is a catch-all phrase. It's lots of different diseases, okay? The typical one that you and I get on a regular basis is either a virus, yeah. like a gastroenteritis, or we get a bad E. coli or a salmonella or something like that. We get a bad bug in our gut. We all get it occasionally, right? All of yeah. us have it. Sometimes it's severe, sometimes it's not severe. Um, children uh, uh, in the public health service, data is collected on children, because children are very vulnerable, old people are very vulnerable. If you get diarrhea, you can die. You can dehydrate very quickly and you can die. Uh, so children have to be treated. Um, adults usually survive. Let me ask you a question. If you had diarrhea today, what would you do? <laughs> what, what, what would you do? And go to a clinic. Yes, and, yeah. and? And I'd want to be cured. Yeah, what would you get? What medicine? Would you get um, medicine? Do you know the medicine? I, I know the medicine I get, but they normally... Because I actually had diarrhea right. once, and they just said um, a sugar. Sit, sit it out, they said. Yeah. Yeah. Rehydrate. Sugar, yeah. They just gave basically. you rehydrate. Okay. Basically. Okay. So when I get diarrhea, I go to the pharmacy and I buy a drug. What do you buy? Do you know what the drug's called? I don't think I do. Imodium. Mm -hmm. Most people will know it. It's, it's what's it called? The pyramide. You go to clicks or you go to the pharmacy, or you go to Discam, you buy Imodium. Mm -hmm. And it gives it stops the cramps and it stops you from running and that's that. Okay, that's what people generally do. Less popular now than before, but that's what most people do. Okay. Now the reason I'm saying that to you is because to get data from for diarrhea is impossible because it's not a notifiable disease. Mm -hmm. So if you get diarrhea and you go to the pharmacy and you, you don't end up in any system which keeps a record. If you go to a clinic, they'll keep a record. Yes. But if you treat yourself, there's no way there's a record of your illness. So I can't tell how many people got sick. Yeah. But there is one thing I can do, 
and that is I can count the number of, of sales of drugs. Right? Yeah. So I went to Clicks and I got data from Clicks, and they've okay. given me the sales of Imodium over the counter for every store that they've got for every day of the year for 10 years. Okay, so we've got that data, I've analyzed that data. Every summer there's a peak, and every winter there's a dip, like a, looks like a peaks and valleys. It's yeah. like a regular heartbeat with this, so we know it's very seasonal. Okay, so then what you can do is we, we've grouped all the data by month, and now we've checked to see what's typical. So they sell most of it in the summer months, and then from about um, May, June, July, August, September, October, November in the whole country, it's negative. So in other words, they sell less than average, but yeah. they're still selling. Okay. Another thing you can do with this kind of data is you can do correlations, and that means you can compare variation in one variable with variation in another variable, and see if they are co-varying, if they vary the same way. Okay. Yeah. So what I did here was we took, this is just for the Limpopo province, we took the sales of this drug in Limpopo and compared it to the surface temperature, the measurable sea surface temperature of the oceans around the world. Sounds like a bizarre thing to do. Yeah, right? it does. But I'll explain to you why it's not so bizarre. <coughs> okay. And what we found was that there was a very strong correlation, a positive correlation, meaning the more um, that this, the, when sea surface temperatures were above average, above what they should be normal, okay, mm -hmm. for certain times, that correlated positively with above normal sales of the drug. When temperatures are above normal, that is a signal of the El Nino. Mm -hmm. So when we have El Nino-like conditions, it's correlated with sales of Lepirima. We know that, I said earlier, El Ninos make us drier. So when it's drier than normal, we're seeing above average sales of, of lepiramide. Okay. So that simply means that this this is just a signal to tell you El Nino means drier conditions means more sales of, of so that's simply saying when it's drier than normal, mm -hmm. we see more diarrhea. Okay. Oh, okay. And similarly with us blue patch over here, that means cooler, that's basically where a lot of our rainfall comes from. Okay, when it's cooler than normal, we have less evaporation, less rainfall in Limpopo, drier in Limpopo, more diarrhea. That's all I can tell you. Just hope it's, I mean, that's the kind of thing we're messing around with. Okay, mm -hmm. trying to like get better handle on all of this. Okay, thank you so much all right. for having me. Do medicine, definitely, no <laughs> question. Okay, thank you to Ashanti and Neville for that really insightful and, and interesting interview. I have to say when we started the podcast, I never thought that I would be broadcasting a whole section on diarrhea. <laughs> okay, up next we have One Minute Science with Shumelam Duduma, who is a planeteer and is going to be telling us about geology. One Minute Science. In its broad sense, geology is the study of the earth, its interior, its exterior surface, as well as rocks and other materials that are around us. Now, in a less broad sense, environmental geologists specifically help prevent contamination of the soil and groundwater by determining geologically safe locations for new landfill sites, coal ash deposit sites, nuclear power plants, and they also plan for ground, underground waste disposal sites. Now, I feel environmental geology is the most important in the sustainability of the Earth, as it also examines the Earth's processes and how they impact, uh, and how 
these processes impact are impacted by geology. It looks at how to solve environmental issues usually caused by human action, but also natural disasters using the principles, methods, as well as tools of, geolo- of geology. The more work geologists can produce on the history and processes, physics and chemistry of the earth, the more we can plan for cataclysmic events such as volcanoes, earthquakes, as well as plate tectonics that cause landslides and flooding. Thanks very much, Lumi. That was absolutely brilliant. Always such a hard job to get your science down to just that one minute. Next up this week, we have the exciting conclusion from last week's Science Theatre. Science Theatre. Welcome to this week's Science Theatre. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, then this will make no sense at all. To be honest, this whole Science Theatre thing barely makes any sense. Even if you know what's happening, let alone if you don't. So if you didn't listen to last week's, I suggest you probably should go and listen, if you did listen to last week's, or if you're just the kind of person who likes to be confused, much like me, then let us begin. Last week, you may remember that our time-travelling friend met an ancient Greek called Euclid who wanted to cut out her eyes. Oh my word, where am I? You're in ancient Greece. On a starry night, my dear, around 55 years before the birth of Christ. What a strange man. Glad I laughed when I did. Then she met a rather arrogant man called Young, who was about to show her something. Well, the thing that we know that separates waves and particles is a thing called diffraction. When particles meet each other, Uh, They bump into each other and sort of scatter off. Waves, on the other hand, can either magnify or cancel each other when they meet. It depends on the phase that they're in. Uh, This means that when two waves meet, you get some areas with lots of energy, or you might think of it as big waves, and some areas with no energy at all, or no waves. It's called a diffraction pattern. And I the greatest man, have developed an experiment to see if waves scatter, and are therefore particles, or, as I suspect, act like a wave and give a diffraction pattern. Are you ready to see? So, let's find out what happened. Okay, Mr. Young, it's very dark in here, so please explain what am I looking at? Let me try and explain this in simple terms that you may perhaps try to understand. On this side, we have a light bulb to produce the light for our experiment. We need a dark room so that the only light in here is coming from this very bulb. Once we turn on the light, it will be blocked on all sides by this black box. It will only be allowed to escape through these two slits you see here. This creates two beams of light. Do you mean beams of particles or beams of wave energy? Well, that's the question that we're here to answer, my child. If you could possibly be a bit patient and just listen to the experts, you might find out. Sorry, sir. 
So as I was saying before I was so rudely interrupted, we have two beams of light. Around 30 centimeters from the beams, we in the slits, we have a white screen on which the beam of light can land and illuminate the screen. The question is, will the light appear as two spots if it is in beams of particles, or will it appear as a diffraction pattern separate in bright areas separated by areas of complete darkness, indicating that it has travelled as a wave? I kinda can't wait to see. Can I see it on? <laughs> and let a woman take responsibility for the greatest discovery of a generation. How utterly preposterous. Here we go. It's a diffraction pattern. Gosh, I can see it. Light must be a wave, not a particle. I, I, I was about to say that. You really are a rather precocious young lady, if I'm being honest. Well, thank you, Mr. Young. You have really helped me. I must be going now. Bye. Goodbye, strange girl, and the best of luck to you. I think I have time for one last stop before I get home. What do you mean, time for one last stop? I mean, isn't it obvious? I can do one more stop before I need to go home in time for my prac tomorrow. But you have a time traveling machine, so surely you can go back to wherever you want to. Seriously? You want to start with this after the way you went on last week? Oh yeah, point taken. Well, we'll all suspend our disbelief and accept the ridiculous premise that a woman with a time machine only has time for one more stop. Where are we going? Let's go to the year 1905. What beautiful mountains! And how nice to get out of that terrible English weather. Hello, sir. Excuse me, but why are you putting that cat in a box? Guten Tag, little Kinder. I really wish I knew. I was just told to do it by my friend Ernst. He wants to know if it's alive or dead or something. Not important. My name is Albert. How may I help you, young lady? I've been trying to find out more about what light is. A gentleman called Mr. Young just proved to me that light is a wave of energy, like a sea wave. That is, or should I say was, the conventional belief. An important question they couldn't answer was, what is, if it is a wave, a wave in what? Oh, like waves on the sea are waves of energy in water. I guess it's a wave in air, like sound. A solid hypothesis, but sadly no. We can pass light through a vacuum, and it's not affected. There is no air in a vacuum. You were right. So in what then? That is the question. Your Mr. Young fellow might have said something about the ether. What's ether? No one knows. They just made it up as a magical substance that permeates a vacuum and allows the light to pass. Seems a bit speculative. Well, yes. It very much breaks Occam's razor. A solution to a problem that doesn't assume the existence of a magical mystery substance would be a much better solution. Magic beams? 
Now a magic substance we seem to be moving in circles. Next you are going to tell me that light is a particle again. How did you know that? Know what? That I just proved that light is a particle. No one has seen the data yet. How did you know? Oh, you have to be f***ing kidding me. When you shine a light on the metal surface, electrons are ejected. The so-called photoelectric effect. But the energy of the electrons is determined by the energy of the light. Low energy light ejects low energy electrons in a ratio of 1 to 1. It's just like snooker balls. One ball, the electron, knocks the other ball, the proton, and knocks it out. This simply would not happen if light were a wave. Mr. Albert. It's Mr. Einstein, actually. But you can call me Albert. I'd prefer Albert. Albert, I have come a long way to find out about light. And Mr. Young, who by the way knew everything, proved to me that light was a wave. I saw it with my own eye that luckily I still have. You don't even want to know about this Euclid fella. You are not wrong. We have a problem. Mr. Yang proved that light is a wave. Me, I proved that it is a particle. I'm here on holiday in the mountains just to think about what the solution is. Ernst told me it might help by putting this cat in the box. But to be honest, I just got scratched to death. He got me all down my back, at least I think, but I can't see if I'm scratched or am I just imagining it. So it's like you were both scratched and not scratched at the same time until you look in the mirror and see. Yeah, I'd need a mirror to see these scratches. Sometimes you think about our problem with light. Can we see light? Well, no, because we seal with light. Hmm, perhaps the world of things that are so small we can never see them is different from the world around us with the things we do see. Particles and the waves are models that describe the world that we can see. Perhaps, Kinder, we should not be surprised if these models do not apply to the quantum world. What's the quantum world? Yeah, it's just a fancy way of talking about things that are very small. The quantum world, uh, for us in 1905, it's a bit like nano will be in your time. It's new and sexy, yeah? I see. If light behaves like a particle in some situations, and a wave in other situations, maybe it's both. But at the same time, neither. It's a kind of thing that we cannot imagine because it doesn't compare to our world. But we can model its behavior as a wave in some circumstances and as a particle in others. That sounds unsatisfactory but useful. So long as you know which model to use when. No but wait. I have it. Perhaps even matter and energy, waves and particles are just different forms, different faces of the same thing. At the quantum level, they exhibit both sides of their character. Nah, I think I like what you said before. Energy and mass are the same. I think we are going off topic now. Let me go write this down. Good luck, Albert. Go well, young lady, and thank you very much for the tip. 
I guess that takes me to my bedtime. What a trip that was. All that's left is to go home and turn off the lights. Thank you, Mr. Einstein, for joining us in studio today. I definitely did not expect to be seeing you here in person. So up next, we have, the I guess, the most useful part for some of you guys who have questions that need to be answered. So we are going into our any question section. Any question? Question? Okay, so first up this week on any questions, we had one question that specifically talked to Dr. Uh, Haley Evers-King. Uh, Haley is actually based in Germany nowadays, and so we asked her to contribute remotely. So let's just go over to Haley to find out what question was asked and how she can help us. Good morning. This is Dr. Haley Evers-King speaking to you from New Metsat. Um, I'm here to answer a question that we've received from Lefa Matula, who asked, is it possible to predict or forecast future flooding and earthquakes using Sentinel-3? This is a fantastic question. So satellites can really only measure the present, which means you might think that they can't look into the future or be used to support forecasting. However, they can. And the data that satellites provide is absolutely vital to our forecasting of different environmental hazards. For Sentinel-3, flooding is a really good example of how the data can be used. Uh, there are two main ways we can think about that flooding might occur. Firstly, think about when we have a lot of rain. Um, to understand when and where it's going to rain and how much, um, we need to predict. And we use numerical weather models to do this. And Sentinel-3 data contributes to numerical weather prediction um, from both sea surface temperature and ocean currents perspectives. So that's one way we can use Sentinel-3 to inform our forecast for flooding. Another way that flooding occurs is from the ocean side. So sometimes if we have big storm events, uh, like the recent Hurricane Dorian, for example, you get what's called a storm surge. These big storms push out ocean water in front of them. And when these storms hit the coast, they can cause flooding. Um, the altimetry instruments aboard Sentinel-3 can measure the sea level. And this allows us to identify what size and shape and where the storm surge is occurring. And then if we have some other information about the land that it's going to hit, we can understand where it might be flooded, for example, and prepare for that. For earthquakes, Sentinel-3 can't really help us. However, Sentinel-3 is actually part of a bigger family of Sentinel satellites, part of the European Commission's Copernicus program. And to understand how earthquakes are happening and potentially to forecast them, we can turn to a different Sentinel, Sentinel-1. Uh, this Sentinel has um, a radar instrument on board and it measures tiny millimetres worth of movement in faults that are linked to how earthquakes happen. And this is helping scientists and um, people who manage impacts of earthquakes to re-evaluate the models of the seismic faults that earthquakes are linked with. And then we can use this to predict better the impacts and understand when and where earthquakes might occur. Thanks for your question. Okay, nice one. Thank you for that, Haley, all the way from Germany. To continue the Any Questions section, we normally have uh, Precious asking the questions and me answering. But today our first question actually is for Precious, so I'm going to go ahead and kick us off. The question comes from Samuel Kelly Siwe Kwabe, and the question is, would it be possible to send me the paper regarding the lost continent? Yes, uh, we will up put a, I'll put up a link on the podcast session, um, the link to the paper, and also on I'll post it up on the HPW. Uh, yeah, we'll try and make a big effort yeah. to any uh, information. We'll post it on, on the podcast site on 
uh, SoundCloud, and then always come to our Facebook group. If you haven't got it, uh, you can find it all over our advertising. The Facebook group is called Access Habitable Planet. Yes. Our next question is from Veliso Kamche. What will happen if the Earth could stop moving or rotating? Aha, that's a really fascinating a question. One. Indeed. Thank you for that. I suppose the first thing to point out is it depends how quickly it stopped moving or rotating, right? Because if it stopped abruptly, well, I think we're going now uh, at our latitude, at a, we're rotating around the Earth at a speed of over a thousand kilometers an hour. So you can imagine that if we stopped rotating, we went from rotating at a thousand kilometers an hour to zero in, in a second, then yeah. we'd all just get thrown off, right? As if you just wang the brakes on a car and you get thrown out the window screen. Uh, all of the plants, the animals, and I think probably the oceans as well would all get immediately ejected out into <laughs> space and so we wouldn't actually be here to discuss that if it could happen more slowly uh, then i suppose we wouldn't all get thrown off a bit like braking gently in a car to, towards a robot, uh, then we would notice uh, immediately some striking changes. I mean, the obvious one would be that for one half of the Earth, it would be daytime continually. Um, for the other half of the Earth, it would be nighttime continually. Uh, so you would probably either lose or get a lot of sleep. And then it would affect all sorts of things because a lot of the uh, the wind patterns are dependent on the diurnal mm. cycle of day and night. But then also, as we learnt in this week's lectures, the wind and ocean circulation patterns are dependent on the Coriolis force, which would stop happening. So we would no longer have any Coriolis force. I believe that then, uh, as a first approximation, as a, a simple model, and I'm, I'm going to put this to you, Precious, as uh, the oceanographer in, in the room, that would mean that uh, atmospheric and ocean currents would proceed only north-south, unless there was uh, something blocking them in the way, right? There would be no reason for ocean and atmospheric currents to ever go in an east-west direction. I have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to think about that, but I know there will definitely be a disruption in the way our currents move and it would affect like the thermohyaline circulation mm -hmm. and that will have huge implications in the distribution of heat as we have learned this week. I suppose one of the interesting things would be that you would probably you would get east-west winds I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stand i'm gonna correct myself mm. and the reason that you would get east-west winds is because the one half of the earth that was in the sun would heat up yes. and the other half of the earth that was in the night would cool down and that would cause a gradient, gradient between in them the water, and so the winds would go yeah. from uh cold winds would come in from the nighttime half of the earth and undercut the rising air in the uh, hotter side of the earth so you'd get mm. buoyant warm air on yeah. the hot side of the earth you get lots of rain that side i'd guess as well which would be undercut by the cold nighttime air coming in from the permanent night side of the earth mm. if uh, you were to get stuck somewhere on a non-rotating earth what time of day would you like to be permanently out <laughs> Night. Nighttime. Just because like, night. yeah, I, I, you will be able to sleep while it's a bit difficult during the day. Mm, I might go for sunset. It's quite pretty. Mm. Uh, or sunrise. But that also depends what part of the world you're in. It depends what part of the world you're in. I was going for sunset because it's a more appropriate time for cocktails. <laughs> but actually, I mean, if it's continually, sunrise might as well do, right? Sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, thank you for that. That was a really interesting question. Our next question is from Kahi Solibaka, and the question is, is there practical evidence and practical photographs that the Earth is spherical, or there are observations that it has a linear nature and a spherical nature? Okay, so this really speaks to uh, the so-called flat Earth debate, mm -hmm. uh, and it's a really uh, it, it's a fascinating and equally frustrating uh, topic because if you'd have gone and asked twenty years ago anyone as to whether the Earth was uh, uh, flat, linear, or spherical, everybody knew that it was spherical. And let me be clear, the, the evidence is, is absolutely overwhelming that the Earth is spherical. But something peculiar has happened in the last 20 years, and it's happened, I think, as a result of the rise of the internet, that this uh, misinformation about various topics, and this being uh, one of them, has started to spread. And it really fascinates me because when I, back when I was at Varsity, uh, this was back, you know, many, many years ago, before everybody had phones in their pockets, <laughs> the, before really the internet came in to its own, we would spend long evenings sat at the university bar uh, and debating really stupid stuff. Like someone would say that Kylie Minogue had died and someone else would say, no, Kylie Minogue is definitely alive. And we would just sit there and debate because there was no way to check is Kylie Minogue alive or dead and uh, everybody would have a strong opinion on it you know like no I heard a new single last week no you can't have done and it would go on for hours and hours and we'd pass away the nights like that and then we've now all got uh, access to all of human information in, in our pockets you would think that those sort of stupid debates would go away and I suppose to some extent they have but they appear to be have repla been replaced with even more stupid debates. It hasn't just fueled the spread of information, the internet has fueled the spread of misinformation. And that's a, a really interesting phenomenon and one which I guess the generation who are just starting in the work environment now are going to have to deal with. How do we actually stop that spread of, of misinformation? Because it's getting more and more convincing. And there's a thing going off topic a little bit, a thing called deep fakes available yeah. now, where you can get a video of somebody speaking, then you can say your words and make it look like that person in the video. An old video, it can be like Obama from 2006. Right, you can yeah. make Obama from 2006 addressing a crowd say any words you want to, and his face will actually be saying those words in his voice. How, how do we proceed in a world where information that appears to be genuine can be so easily faked? Is, is, a, is a fascinating question. But um, but nailing down on the the question itself, uh, and the answer is. Yes, <laughs> there are <laughs> photographs. We've literally been to the moon several times. We've sent more than tens, I think into the hundreds of objects into space that are capable of taking photos and the Earth <coughs> is spherical. There's all sorts of practical observations that actually demonstrate this from the Coriolis force happening, which couldn't happen uh, without a spherical Earth, to not being able to see over horizons, uh, for example, which wouldn't happen without a spherical Earth, to actually the fact that you, know, you can fly to Australia Planes actually have to take into account the curvature of the Earth to find the shortest route. It's demonstrably shorter. For example, when flying from the UK to America, you would think that you should fly directly west if 
you looked at a paper flat map, yeah. directly west is the shortest route. However, because the Earth is a sphere, it's actually shorter to fly over the Arctic, where, where if you I can imagine a sphere, it's, there's less of a distance to go around at the top than there is in the middle, so it makes sense to fly in the Arctic. Practically, if you fly via the Arctic, you get to America quicker, right? Demonstrating that the Earth is in fact a sphere. Oh, thanks Carl. I'm just trying to figure out whether I would have loved to live in a time where I didn't have access to news or now where I have uh, the option to choose and to investigate whether what I, the information that I'm fed is fake or is uh, the truth. So It's a really interesting time yeah. to live in, to be honest. <laughs> and, I mean, there's the other famous saying, right, that uh, if you had somebody come visit from 200 years ago, the two things that would surprise them the most are, one, that we have access to all of the human knowledge and experience in our pockets mm. anytime we want, and two, that what we mostly use it for is to look at silly pictures of cats. <laughs> Amazing. Our last question for the session is a non-science question, but useful. So one of the planeteers wants to know how many participants are chosen to go to the workshop in December, and that is Nos Pamandlandamani. Okay, and that's a question that lots of people often uh, want to ask. As we did say in the small print at the start, the answer is in one respect simple and in one respect not. The simple version of the answer is that the top 25 on the list are guaranteed a place, and that's just based on simple grades alone in the tests. Mm. Right? Uh, at the minute, there are around 600 people on the course, so 25 sounds very few. <coughs> there are two clarifications to that that I need to make. The one is that if the past is anything to go by, then very few people actually complete the course, or a very low percentage, probably only 100. So then it brings it down to being the top 25 out of 100. So the one thing that you can do if you want to come to Cape Town is just make sure you keep up with the course. That's the easiest thing, and just keep completing the tests. The second thing to say is it won't be just 25. It's only 25 that are guaranteed a spot. On, after that, it depends a little bit on our budget. So I need to look at the next students on the list and see where they live. And so getting a student from, for example, um, Bender down to Cape Town is a lot more expensive than getting one from, say, Port Elizabeth to Cape mm. Town. And so I, I'm in the difficult situation that I have to deliver the workshop to a budget, and so I've got to manage the budget, and so I can only take then as many more students as I can afford, and that will depend on a little bit where they're coming from. One slight last proviso that was in the, uh, the um, small print is that of those ones after 25, it might not just be those with the top grades. We also, because of our uh, commitments to our sponsors, the Department of Science and Technology, they are interested in seeing more black and more female students in science. So if we end up with too few black students or too few female students on the course, then we reserve the right to actually pick some extra black and female students to make sure that we have balanced numbers. I don't wish to be you, Carl. <laughs> good luck. Thank and you. good luck to everyone who is taking the online course. And there we have it, guys. This concludes the question session of our podcast. And in fact, it concludes the podcast for this week. Yes. 
Um, we'll be looking forward to uh, talking to you all again next yes, week. Yes, more questions. And more questions. That would be amazing. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen. Please join us again next time when the next podcast brought you yes. by... The Habitual Planet Podcast was produced by Pekiso and Tinkulu. The studio team in Cape Town were Carl Palmer, Precious Mashvelela, and Asmita Singh. All voices in science theatre were done very badly, and any resemblance to actual people is both highly unlikely and purely coincidental.